Hey everybody, welcome to Morpheus Radio. My name is Joel Jameson, founder of Morpheus and Eight Weeks Out. In each episode, we'll connect you with the brightest minds in recovery, nutrition, longevity, and human performance. If you like what you hear, make sure to take a few seconds to subscribe and share the knowledge. You can learn more at trainwithmorpheus.com. Now on to the show. We are live. Eric Cressy, welcome to Morpheus Radio, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, super excited to have you. And Joel, welcome back as always, my friend. Good to have you here as well. Yeah, it's great to be on. And uh, again, Eric, thanks for coming on. I know you and I have kind of chatted and talked to each other over the years, but I don't think we've ever actually had a podcast together that I can think of. I know, I was thinking about that. I don't think we have. Plenty of, plenty of meetups in, in Seattle through Luca, though, over the years. So this is exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again for coming on. No yeah. problem. Lucas seems to be a, a unifying. He hasn't actually been on this podcast yet, Joel. We got to make that happen as well. Yeah, we will. He's he's got a lot of stuff on his plate as always, doing a million different things. Got his, his own uh, summit coming up here, but we'll definitely grab jump on jump on a cuss with him. Yeah, right on. Well, uh, gosh, Eric, man, where where do we start with you? I've I've been in the coaching industry for uh, almost fifteen years. I've heard your name, My buddies with Gentle Core, and um, no, that's part of the founding posse of what you guys did there. But I guess for maybe those who are unfamiliar uh, with you and who you are, maybe give us just a, you know, a short snippet of your background and what you do now. Yeah, sure. So um, Tony, along with uh, Pete Dupuy and I, um, we co-founded Cressy Sports Performance back in 2007 in Hudson, Massachusetts. Um, Started out as kind of like training folks from all walks of life, wide variety of athletes, um, and really kind of quickly carved out this niche in, in the baseball community, um, training the conditioning for baseball players. Um, and it kind of just grew by leaps and bounds, you know, strength conditioning became, you know, associated physical therapy, massage therapy, you know, you know, skill development, um, all these different entities, analytics. So uh, it grew by leaps and bounds. And we, we now train guys from all 30 major league organizations, um, tons of high school, college players as well. Um, we opened a second location in, in Jupiter, Florida um, in 2014. Um, so we've got, you know, two different uh, geographic sites going and kind of like a larger national brand. Um, in addition to that, I, um, I took on a role as director of player health and performance for the New York Yankees, um, at the end of 2019. So this is my, my second uh, year with the big league club. Um, and actually it's really more of a, a position that involves, you know, the entire organization scaling a lot of the initiatives at the higher levels, all the way down to what we're doing in our minor league system, our Dominican Academy. Um, so I have, you know, interactions with, you know, pro scouting, domestic scouting, um, all kinds of different stuff. And then I, I write, I consult, I speak, I do some different things on the side and I'm a husband and then a, a dad of three daughters. So things are never dull. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> um, just out of curiosity before uh, we kind of get into the meteor topics, but Eric, what is like a normal, let's say month, what does a normal month look like for you? Yeah, it's, um, I don't know if there is one. Um, the thing I should probably add to that is that we split our year between, between Massachusetts and Florida. Um, so we, we live a good chunk of the year in Jupiter, Florida, um, while our kids are in school. And then, uh, once the summer kind of rolls around, we're in, we're in Hudson, Massachusetts. So I'm at our Massachusetts facility and my, my wife's an optometrist. So she still has her practice here in Massachusetts. Uh, but then, you know, there are periodic trips to, to Tampa during spring training. And then obviously to New York during the season, um, I'll do some travel with the team and everything. So I don't know if there's a really a standard month, but, um, you know, there's usually probably 10 to 14 days of travel um, mixed in on busy months and, and other months. It's, you know, it's 
it's less during the off season and all that. So my, my year is very much lived in, um, in different cycles of craziness. So there's either in season craziness or there's off season craziness. Well, <laughs> I think one of the, uh, I, I was, so it's, it's weird how we prep for interviews nowadays. I was going through Instagram. And I was looking at uh, some of the thoughts and one of the things that came up and I was, you know, conversing with Joel before this and um, the way over the last like 10 to 20 years, you had a post about it, just like how much bigger, faster, stronger pro athletes are and the durations of the seasons are long um, and they're more brutal, right? It's just more Mm -hmm. of a grind. And you know, with your, I'm curious to get your, both you guys' observations come from, you know, the baseball world, the combat sports world and NFL world with you, Joel, you know, when you guys look at these athletes and they just, it just seems to never end. I mean, just, we just watched the Olympics and they're still breaking world records and they're, you know, some of the swimmers are humongous. Uh, not like when back in my day when I swam. And so where, where have you guys seen this evolution of why are, are, are they continuing to get bigger, stronger, and faster? And how are they recovering from these grueling seasons? What is, uh, yeah, let's start in with that. Yeah, it's, it's changed dramatically. And I, I don't think it's, you know, it's certainly I'm speaking from the baseball world because that's what I know well. And, and Joel obviously can speak from combat sports, but I, I, I actually was talking to Mike Roberts recently on his podcast. And I told the story, uh, I saw Buddy Morris, I want to say 10 years ago or so. And, and Buddy had been in the NFL, gone to the college setting, and he came back to the NFL and I just, I, I distinctly remember him telling me, he's like, the average fan can't appreciate what is actually taking place on an NFL football field. Like the speeds the games are played at. It's like a car accident in front of you every single play. And you just, you never know that when you're sitting on your couch at home watching, you know, Sunday night football or something like that. And um, I, there are times when I feel the same way. And, and it's, it's very interesting where, you know, you, you go to Yankee Stadium to work and you can get desensitized. You're going to one of the most historic places on the planet. Um, you know, you, you, know, you go out on the field to work with guys or you're, you're, you know, you're passing someone who's, you know, got 5 million Instagram followers and is like this adored person in the hallway and they're a normal person. You treat them that way because you, you get desensitized to it. It's what makes you better at your job. Some of the stuff that I, I seen just in terms of pure athleticism, um, you know, watching like John Carlos Stanton just hit in the cage, like the, the sound of it, you, you can't ever get desensitized to how fast some of these guys play the, the game at. We have, you know, pitchers in the major leagues that are throwing 102 mile an hour cutters now. And it's just, it's such a dramatic change um, than what it used to be. It was really interesting that like a couple of years ago, actually it was probably about a year, year and a half ago. I don't know if you guys remember it, um, the documentary on the, the Sosa and McGuire, like home run chase came out. And it was really interesting because, you know, it was kind of like a buzz topic around a lot of our, our major leaguers in the gym guys were choking about it. It was, it was kind of like a little bit after the Jordan documentary came out. So, you know, there's a lot of, not a whole lot of sports going on in the world at that time. So people were looking for, for something to talk about. And I distinctly remember, you know, when, when we were in the gym, we're like, Hey, what'd you guys think of the documentary? And you expect everybody like, Oh man, that was so good for baseball. And so some like that was a great robbery and all this, you know what the number one bit of feedback was from our major leaguers when they watched that man, those pitchers threw slow. Those guys were throwing meatballs. Like I could go out, I could buy 50 tanks there. The game has changed so dramatically. I want to say the average major league players is gained something like 12% body weight um, over the last couple of decades. The average fastball velocity goes up every single year. You know, guys are hitting balls 120 miles an hour, you know, in major league baseball. It is 
is so different than it was even, you know, 15, 20 years ago. So it's, it's pretty crazy to see up close. It'd be always, it's always interesting to think about the games today and the stars of today versus the stars of, you know, a decade or two decades ago, because you always want to compare them, but you can't really, they, they're all playing in, in different games and different, uh, you know, levels, same thing, combat sports, combat sports is quite a bit different than baseball because baseball is such an old traditional sport relative to combat sports, which really, you know, was only, was only 20 something years old at this point. So the first part of combat sports was, you know, a guy with no boxing experience, who was just a wrestler fighting a guy who'd been boxing his whole life. And you had this weird period where it was just, you know, hoist Gracie for the most part, taking people down and then it evolved into strikers kind of coming back. And then you eventually had people learning how to be a bit more well-rounded. And then it's only been the last, you know, five or eight years in combat sports. You had any kind of athleticism in the sport, you know, I mean, uh, you know, you had a lot of the early champions. They were just terrible athletes, but they were tough guys that could, you know, strike or take the guys down or whatever. So I would say combat sports is years and years behind baseball in terms of that level of getting, um, you know, just world-class athleticism in there. But you're starting to see it definitely more and more in combat sport athletes. What you really see more and more in combat sports is just much more well-rounded, higher level of skill with a good level of athleticism. But I think it's it happens in all sports. It's just, just evolution of sports in general. It's the same thing with you know, any sport, whether it's car racing or combat sports or baseball or anything else, like people are always going to try to push the edge because you're always going to try to get an extra, uh, you know, an extra two inches in your guys in the field. You're going to get someone who wants, who's going to be faster, or stronger. You're just always pushing the limits, I think. And here we are, you know, eventually, uh, um, you know, we'll reach some kind of plateau sort of, but I think we'll always just kind of see human performance continue to evolve and improve as we, as we progress. I think the upside has changed too, right? Like Joel, like, you know, 30 years ago, like if you were into MMA, like you would just beat your buddies up at, at jujitsu practice and go home and you couldn't really monetize it. Like now you can go and make a lot of money at a big level. And, and we've seen the same stuff in, you know, major league baseball. Obviously the contract's really high. NBA is like exponentially higher. So people are willing to take more risks. They're, they're willing to, to go and push the envelope. And we know, you know, if you look at, at ulnar collateral ligament injuries in baseball, every mile per hour harder you throw increases the incidence of ligament rupture by 15%. And you even look at like the rehabilitation community, you can, you can literally look at success rates on, on ACL reconstructions. You know, the, if, if you try to come back at six months, you're risking it. But you do it at seven, you're risking it a little bit less. You do it at eight, you're risking a little bit less. And like, a lot of this comes down to like, how much are you willing to, to take on a, an increased level of risk to, to get hurt? For some people, like the, the financial merits of doing so are, are substantially higher. Yeah, and it makes sense. I think too, when I, when I was, um, you know, Crashy, you started what, 2007? I started my gym in 2003. At that point in time, like there was no strength conditioning aside from like my yeah. gym and maybe one other. And now they're everywhere. So I think just the prevalence of training the prevalence yeah. of youth training and focus training and kids these days. I mean, I'm not saying it's a great thing for the youth, but they're training, you know, one sport their entire lives. And they end up, you know, you find that one kid who's one of the best in the world sooner or later. And it's, it's, you know, it takes its toll on the rest of them. But I think we're just kind of seeing that evolution of kids now being born into one sport or even one position just about and getting specialized, advanced, high level training for their entire lives until they make it the big leagues. And those kids are going to be, you know, bigger, stronger, faster than their, their predecessors who didn't start anywhere near that level of training at their ages. Yeah. And we're going to see the survivorship bias as well, right? We're going to hear about the one kid that makes it. We're not going to hear about the 10,000 kids whose, whose parents like mortgaged their house and, and dropped everything to specialize in tennis. And then a kid went up with a stress fracture at age 15 and never played again. Um, there, there is an element of survivorship bias. We hear about that, that, uh, you know, young prodigy that, that just happened 
and to make it, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely, I, like I said, when I did a lot of stuff with, with the youth volleyball, it was, it was exactly mm-hmm. that you'd see the, the one or two girls who'd be tall enough and strong enough and jump and, you know, buy the game and they'd be in college or, or play pro after that and be the other 90, you know, plus percentage that, you know, blew something out in high school or, and never finished a career or maybe played high school, but just too burnt out to play college. So it's, it's kind of like everyone talks about China and the old Eastern European, uh, you know, meat grinders, like in some sense, the U S has become that. I think we're yeah. hopefully a little bit, hopefully not quite as bad. And, and I've seen some stories in China that were uh, pretty bad, but you know, we, we do have a huge population of athletic kids and we have a huge population of genetic diversity. And, you know, this is what you get when you press that over time, you get amazing athletes, at the top of the sport that are performing at the highest levels, making, you know, insane amount of money to do it. So question for you guys, I and mean, if we just give it like a time frame, let's say in the last decade, so the last 10 years, and today is August 30th, 2021, uh, when you look at some of the major factors that have really been driving performance, I mean, you guys mentioned it, you know, uh, specialization at an early age, um, <clears throat> you know, but what other major factors do you think are driving these, these huge advancements in physical capabilities and performance? Hey, everybody, quick time out to ask you a question. Have you heard about the Morpheus 30-Day Recovery Challenge? Well, the not-so-secret secret is out. Better health and fitness starts with better recovery. During each monthly challenge, you'll get to compete with people from all over the world to win prizes while learning how to unlock the power of recovery. We've partnered with world-renowned experts in areas like sleep, stress, mobility, and recovery science to help you level up your fitness, maximize your performance, and live a healthier and longer life life. The best part is that the challenge is absolutely free. All you need is a Morpheus recovery system to join. Don't have Morpheus yet? Just go to trainwithmorpheus.com forward slash challenge to learn more about how it all works and how to get in on the next challenge. Better recovery means better results. Trainwithmorpheus.com slash challenge. I mean, I, I can speak to certainly RRL. I mean, obviously there's, there's no doubt about just the fact that strength and conditioning is more popular. You know what I mean? When if we're looking back to like the pre 2000 area, like pretty much all of the research in, in the area of health and human performance was, you know, aerobic driven. And then we started to look at strength and conditioning, you know, and impacting chronic disease states and things like that and bone density. And, you know, it was just a matter of time until we actually got better and better resources with respect to optimizing performance. And, and I think even more now we're, you know, we're starting to get better technology to look at how, you know, manual therapy, you know, impacts various systems. And, you know, we're seeing that dry needling and cupping, you know, impact someone markedly differently, but both can, can offer benefits. Um, I think in our world, one place where it's probably changed the most is, is video evaluation. Um, you know, nowadays, if you have an iPhone, you can do a hundred times more than you could do with even the best camcorder in 2010. Um, and in the world of like pitching mechanics, like I, I know for us, uh, you know, a lot of what you can do with, you know, like the edutronic cameras or even on some of like the really, really good, um, iPhones is just like looking at, you know, how you impart force to a baseball. Like we can, you know, zoom in really, really close on somebody's hands and we can show why, Hey, you're throwing a 90% spin efficiency fastball. If you can get that to hundred percent spin efficiency, you're going to throw it two miles an hour harder and you're not going to throw accidental cutters. Like those are, are very powerful things. Um, so video evaluation has, has absolutely revolutionized the, you know, the game of baseball. And it's why you see, you know, major league baseball teams inventing, you know, two, three, $4 million on, on systems for their stadiums. So they can get in-game biomechanics, 
Um, it's why you see scouts bringing, you know, high-speed cameras to games to evaluate players. Um, that's been a, a huge initiative in baseball that's, that's completely changed the game. Eric, I'm curious, what do you see in terms of, I mean, you're on the, the strength conditioning and you're kind of across the spectrum, but kind of your average strength conditioning coach. I mean, how much that, that, that works with baseball players. Uh, are you seeing them more and more starting to understand the mechanics of the game? So I think early on in strength conditioning, we kind of all treated, all, no, not all treated, all that it's the same, but I don't think most strength conditioning coaches became as specialized into a single sport as you obviously have in baseball and I did towards uh, combat sports. But yeah. are you seeing now more and more like baseball specific strength conditioning coaches and you know, guys in that level who really dive as deep into the sport as possible to understand it and become more specialized as a strength conditioning coach, even, you know, in a private setting? I, I'd say yes. No. Um, and this, I'm going to be careful to try to make this not sound like condescending. There are more people that are flocking to being a baseball specific strength conditioning coach. I don't think a lot of people have an idea of how to actually take care of baseball players. It's still very low hanging fruit to me. It's a very underserved population still because, you know, I'm, I'm like in, in that room all day, every day, it's, it's literally, you know, 90% of the people that I encounter on a daily basis are baseball players, whether it's, you know, amateur, professional, you name it. And, and I still just see a lot of really bad programs that don't fundamentally understand the demands of sport. So like, I'll, I'll give you the best example I could possibly appreciate is classic division one baseball pitcher experience. All right. So a six foot three, 180 pound kid goes to college. He's throwing 86 to 88 miles an hour at six foot three, 180, 185. You need to put on 25, 30 pounds. So what happens? Kid gets to college. He puts on 25 or 30 pounds in his first year and a half. All of a sudden he's throwing 91 to 93. He's feeling amazing. And you know what happens? He's the exact same pitcher two years later. And in fact, he's worse because he's usually been banged up lost a bunch of motion and all that. So we see a lot of guys that go to division one weight rooms. They do a ton of bilateral exercise. They get bigger and they get stronger in a global sense and they lose rotational capacity. They often don't pay attention to optimizing end range, external rotation control. They don't understand that it's about, you know, how well they work into their front hip. They don't understand that there's an elastic component of the fascial system that allows them to, you know, both produce and transfer force over an entire system. So they progressively get worse. And, and then what happens? They get to pro ball. In many cases, we we take a little bit of a step back from just crazy bilateral loading, um, train with a little bit more velocity-based intent, um, train more rotationally, whether it's rotational rows or using the proteus or throwing the med balls, whatever it is. We sprint more, we change direction more. We get them on an actual good arm care program. We teach them about how to take care of their body. We optimize the mechanics. And that same kid is 94 to 96, the same body weight with better movement competencies. Like I see this story every single day. Um, Division one baseball strength conditioning with a very few exceptions is not remarkably progressive for baseball players. So I just, um, you know, to answer your question, yes, there are more people that are trying to do it in terms of the actual, uh, you know, X's and O's of doing it. I, I'm still think the industry has a long way to go. Yeah, it's just kind of the same thing in the combat sports side, honestly, especially when, when combat sports started becoming more popular and more money got in the sport, you had tons of, of coaches on the strength conditioning side that jumped in the sport and then maybe had a background in coaching football or whatever, like myself started out with, but they just kind of slapped the same programs on a combat sport athlete, not realizing, well, combat sport athletes is, is playing this sport three, four hours a day, sometimes more than that. You can't just throw like an off-season football program on the, on the guy yeah. and think it's going to work out for him in the long run, but that's what they were doing and they still do that, unfortunately. Um, so I, I think both both sides of those are a lot of sports are unfortunately kind of like that. And that kind of leads me to I was going to talk to you about one thing is 
you know, combat sports, the biggest thing I learned really early on was, was half of my game was, was just athlete management and trying to keep these guys healthy. And as much as I wanted to, you know, do a bunch of things from a high level performance, like if they were so banged up that they could barely walk, like I wasn't going to do a whole bunch of stuff to make them more sore and, and break them down further. I mean, how much does the recovery side, um, I mean, not change, but what does the recovery side look like? At, uh, you know, maybe a D one level where it's maybe lacking or, or at the professional level, what, what is, what does that end of the game look like for, for these teams these days? Yeah, it's gotten remarkably better. Um, you know, certainly just the, the, even like just the, you know, the foundational stuff, what is it? It's sleep, hydration and nutrition, right? Um, you know, we see more and more professional teams that have nap rooms they, they travel differently, right? No longer is it like, you got to wear a full suit on the plane. Like, Hey, we want to, you know, make sure that you, you know, address so that you can sleep best. You know, a lot of colleges are traveling with like sleeper buses. Um, they're adjusting their travel schedule where it may not be advantageous to just like, you know, hop on a plane the second a game ends and take a red eye. Maybe they're staying the night and adjusting over the course of the next day. So there's way more attention to that. Um, certainly on the nutrition side of things, it has gotten better. You know, a lot of credit to the Dodgers and Pirates. They were kind of the first two to really push the envelope on the, um, the minor league nutrition side of things in, in particular. So, you know, now you're looking at a situation where, you know, the, all these major league teams have dietitians that or the majority of them have full-time dietitians that will travel with the team. Whereas in the past, that wasn't the case. Uh, you know, certainly a lot of college programs have, have very high level nutritional offerings as well. Um, so those are, are certainly get better. Like I know we do sweat tests with all of our players. They have like individualized hydration solutions for, you know, before and during the games. Um, so you can, you can make it as advanced as you want, but I think, you know, if we're looking at those, you know, those three bottom tier things, what are the foundation? Um, you know, they, they've gotten remarkably better, you know, in recent years. And then, you know, you build on top of them. Now you've got everything from, you know, red light therapy to Normatech to BFR to, you know, 15 different kinds of manual therapy. Like I look at our major league staff and we really have like seven guys there, you know, on full-time, you know, who can do manual therapy for you. And then we also have like a, you know, a acupuncturist who can come in and dry needle. Um, we have a chiropractor that comes in like you you have all these resources available to your, your, your athletes at the highest level so that you can figure out the right mix for them. Um, so it's, it's, it's improved dramatically and, you know, but I think, you know, and this is probably something that's even more near and dear to you is like, you can take all the recovery approaches, you know, in the world, but none of it matters if you haven't built a, you know, robust, durable athlete on the front end. So if you, if you train to, you know, optimize, you know, preparation and, and build someone who's going to be durable and, you know, have a high level of work capacity that's specific to, you know, the challenges of that sport, you know, that's always going to be far more important than any, you know, recovery initiative that you can roll out. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm curious to how he Clark as uh, a longtime pro baseball player worked for me in, yeah. in the bio side years ago. Yeah. He used to always say like, basically he'd be like, you know, the young guys, they just don't know what they don't know. And, yep. you know, it was like trying to kill yourself to get them to pay attention to recovery and take care of their bodies and, and not go out and party after the games. And the older guys that were, you know, a bit wiser and been in the game quite a bit longer. They were the smart ones who were going to bed and taking care of themselves and eating, hydrating and getting and you know, taking advantage of all the soft tissue. So are you still seeing that? Are you starting to see more of the younger players start to embrace some of the stuff as they recognize the the benefits from it? Yeah, there's definitely a generational shift that's that's coming along because these things are are more normal. Like if you play, you know, Clemson, for instance, right, you're going to have access to a lot of this stuff and you get to pro ball and you know, there's probably going to be a little correction you go to where you might 
and not have all those amenities that you had in college, just because you, you can't bring them all on the road with you. And, you know, if you're, if you're playing in a league where you got a nine hour bus ride to your next game and you're going to be at that, that, that location for six days, it's hard for them to pack up their entire weight room and training room and bring it with you. But um, yeah, it is, it is becoming more accepted at the younger levels. Um, you know, I think the challenge about baseball is you always have um, a lot of exceptions to the rule, right? You have you have athletes that might be successful because of a trait or a characteristic more so than true athleticism, right? So maybe they're, you know, they've got long fingers, so they throw a good splitter, or they just have the ability to, to rip off a 3,000 RPM curveball, um, or they have crazy hypermobility allows them to contort their bodies and, you know, in weird positions on the mound to, to create deception. You know, those are the the challenges because in many cases you get athletes who are successful in spite of what they do, as opposed to because of what they do. And th- those guys always get exposed. And the reason is very simple. It's, you know, it's basically 200 games in 230 days. You know, the major league baseball season is 162 games. You have spring training on the front end. You often have, you know, postseason on the back end. And you might get two days off per month. And, and what often happens at, at this time of year is, you know, you had a rain out earlier in the year where you sat at the ballpark for nine hours, hope to play a game. And instead they just tacked it on, you know, on the end of the schedule. So like we, we actually just had a scenario where we played 17 games in 16 days, um, you know, some makeup stuff. So it, you know, there's, there's never an opera, uh, an optimal recovery setup in place at this level. And, and it's why I think baseball in particular is such a unique challenge. Like I, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to friends who, you know, are directors of performance in the NBA or the NHL. And they're like, man, we, we play like two games a week. Like, how do you guys do it? How do you play six or seven or, or eight? Um, and I, I actually, it was interesting. I saw, a, um, it was a really good article on SB nation that talked about the NBA with, just basically how free agency has played out. The average NBA team is turning over 40% of their rosters each year. And what it's led to is like an uglier style of play, right? They're just like running pick and rolls and guys are shoot three pointers. And it's, it's kind of like just like playground ball. And they've, they've actually gotten to the point now where they want to make guys practice more often. So they've actually reduced the number of like back-to-back games because, you know, when you give guys days off, the teams are more likely to practice and they want to get back to the days of like Tony Parker and, you know, Tim Duncan and Manu Ginobili, like these teams that like knew each other well, instead of just like four really good basketball players who are all just going out and like basically playing one-on-one with the guy that's guarding them. So it's interesting, like the NBA with load management and actual scheduling to try to improve the quality of play is like kind of going in the opposite direction. And meanwhile, you know, in the baseball world, like we're, we're still playing a ton of games. Yeah. I remember I did a little bit of work with some of the couple, couple teams in the, uh, the major league baseball era and they were they were just kind of giving me an idea of the schedule and they were you know going through the day i'm like it, it's pretty mind-boggling i mean i don't know if you want to take a second just to give, yeah. give people an idea of like what does a, a day look like from a major league player in a game day because i i kind of started going through this as they were walking me through like a typical week i mean i don't think the average yeah. person you know has any appreciation for you know the player does not just show up at the park take a few practice swings and then play a game like that's not how it works even though people might think that so I think it'd be interesting if you yeah. kind of walk people, what does a day look like for a major league player and the yeah. staff for that matter? Yeah, it's it's a little bit different um, in, the, in the era of COVID. But, you know, historically, like if you play like a seven o'clock game, you know, usually there's like a team brunch at the hotel that runs from like kind of anywhere from like, I guess, 10 to two, um, depending on whether, you know, like I'm always like at the early end of that, if I'm, you know, on the first staff bus to the field. Um, and usually the, the first player bus will usually be at the field around two o'clock. Um, and once they get there, you know, you, 
you kind of will get guys in there that'll they'll mull around. They usually get some food when they get there as well. Um, they'll they'll change in their workout gear. Um, most of the guys will go through um, like some self myofascial release foam rolling. They may go in the the training room get some treatments, um, and then the, all of our guys will come in and actually do like individualized warmups um, early in the day like that. We'll have guys that'll come a little bit earlier on one of the, you know, like the earlier buses if they want to get a lift in that day. Um, so most guys will have gone through their individualized warmup and a lift um, before they actually go out and, and hit up, uh, you know, like a, a pitcher stretch. So like we play a seven o'clock game, usually pitcher stretch is four or 30 on the field. That to me is always bonus. They should have done their individualized stuff, you know, inside more of their correctives and they go out to the field and, you know, pitcher stretch will get their body temperature up. Most of the guys will play catch. Some of them will do more extended long toss. Some will just play catch. Um, there's usually position players stretch, you know, around, you know, 4.40 or 5 o'clock. Again, those position players have already done some individualized stuff inside. Um, after that, you know, the guys may take BP on field or not. There's a hitting hitters meeting usually at, at 4.30. Uh, historically, home team takes BP first on field, visitors second. And that'll usually wrap up at, you know, six slash six fifteen guys are going to get a pregame meal. Game will start at seven. Um, in the average fan, like you know, they see like what goes on on the field. So there's a lot of like warm up, cool down, warm back up. So usually, a lot of players go out to the line at six fifty to seven oh five, give or take, um, to do like some some stuff out there. Usually, it's just some easy sprint stuff, play catch. Um, you know, some guys do some band resistance sprinting stuff like that. Um, and then the game will get going during the game, uh, you know, from a staffing standpoint, you're always getting relief pitchers, potential pinch runners, potential, you know, ABs. We have guys that are DH and they're always mulling around the clubhouse trying to stay active. Um, so there's always like prep going on during the game. You know, historically a game will end at, I don't know, 10, 15 to, to, to 11, depending on what kind of a game it is. Um, you usually will have like a couple of leaf pitchers and may, sometimes even starters, if they lift on their, their start, they will lift like during like innings, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, um, afterwards, just to consolidate some stress. Um, we'll have some guys, position players who might lift post game if they didn't do it earlier in the day. Um, and then there's always stuff going on in the training room, whether it's manual therapy, uh, Norma tech, BFR, dry needling, um, you know, there's red light therapy, you know, all those different things. And then there's usually, you know, obviously there's post-game meals and things like that. And a lot of guys take them to go, and, you know, so it's kind of like a, a 2 PM to midnight for most of the players. Um, and you know, where it gets hard is like, sometimes you do all that stuff and then you hop on a flight at 1230 and fly three hours and have to get up and do it again at, you know, at seven o'clock the next day. So there's, there's time zone changes and things along those lines. But, um, I, you know, it all gets thrown out of whack too. When you play a, you know, like yesterday we played a, uh, a getaway day. It was a four o'clock game. Um, although it was seven o'clock on the East coast, we're on the West coast. And tonight we play at seven on the West coast again. So um, every series is a little bit different, but you know, the days can be very long. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't wait. <coughs> when I was talking to those guys with, with two thoughts, like one is it's a, it's just a grind on the athletes, but maybe you can talk yeah. about from the coaches standpoints too. I mean, the yeah. coaches aren't making, you know, most of them at least aren't making millions and millions of dollars to do this. And they're spending, you know, huge amounts of time before and after, you know, all the that stuff the athletes are doing. What does what the day look like for the coaches? I, mean, I would say, I would like to talk about the strength conditioning staff or support staff rather than the skill coaches. Yeah. I think, um, you know, where, where the, where the coaches do have a little more so on the strength edition, like that support staff, like we can do with some of our paperwork and stuff like that during the game. Um, you know, sometimes we're in the dugout, whatever it may be, but, um, you know, a, a lot of times, like I'm actually doing a lot of our check-in with like the minor league side, doing outreach on any of our rehab cases, meeting with our director of sports men, our athletic trainer during the game. But, 
you know, the days do get going a little bit more. I think the nice thing, if there, there's one nice thing that came out of COVID, it's, it's that a lot of the stuff that traditionally was like an in-person meeting, we were able to do more remotely. Um, you know, sometimes that's meeting at the hotel instead of the stadium, but doing a little bit more stuff on the front end. So, you know, they were just trying to minimize the amount of time everybody was hanging out in locker rooms over the last couple of years, just because baseball has historically been a culture where you spend a ton of time at the park. So, um, you know, early in the day, I, I'm actually... I mean, I'm a guy who's like a super early riser anyway, so it doesn't matter whether I go to bed at midnight or 10, 10 p.m. or 2 a.m. Like I'm still a guy who can't sleep past 7 a.m. So I tend to do a lot of my work early in the morning. A lot of that's notes and, and especially given that I'm, I'm involved on a few different things. So whether it's amateur draft prep or, you know, doing continuing education stuff across the organization, like those can happen at, at different times of day. But, um, you know, from a coaching staff standpoint, usually, you know, you know, they're, they're headed into the, to the field, you know, around noon for a seven o'clock game. And they're there until, until midnight, you know, we have coaches that come in and, you know, they'll work out, but you know, they'll meet, they'll do different things. But um, the, other, the other thing we haven't even discussed is like a lot of these guys have to do media stuff, you know? So if, if, you know, if pitcher X is pitching on Friday, on Thursday, he's doing a pregame, you know, zoom call with our media, um, you know, our manager does media stuff before every game. So there's, there's a, there's a lot of craziness and then it, it, it shuffles throughout the year. That's, that's the other part of like professional baseball strength conditioning that maybe is different than other sports is, um, you know, in spring training, they're really early days. Like you're usually at the park by, you know, five 30 most days. Um, and then your you know, your day kind of like wraps up by like two, whereas once the season gets going, you flip that schedule completely on its head and, you know, your, your day kind of becomes noon until, you know, midnight. So it's, there's, there's always some adjustments that happen. Yeah, it's just a crazy day. Like I said, I just don't think the average fan or or a lot of coaches appreciate just the the amount of time that really goes into you know the, the average baseball player's day or uh, the coach's day. And I mean, obviously, you're talking 160 to 162 games, right? It's 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 mm-hmm. grueling, and to think about that's almost every day for you know months and months on end. Are there mm-hmm. is there? I'm curious. Are there like are there specific things that, that you see in the athletes that are uh, you know, the durable athletes you see coming out of college or or out of the high school ranks versus the ones you just kind of look at them and evaluate them, you know, like these guys aren't going to survive. Like, are there traits and things that you can pick up really quickly that separate some of those guys that are just innately durable versus guys that aren't? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we can all agree, like programs only work when athletes work. Um, and, and so I look for qualities that, you know, you know, from a, a mentality standpoint, tell me that that athlete's going to be bought in. It's going to work hard for us, and it's going to give those efforts. So, I, I think anytime I, I can find an athlete intrinsically motivated, that's that's going to bode really, really well for him over the course of his career. Um, so, I look a lot at the draft process. Like, is it a is it a kid that was like that fell in love with like talking to every agent, talking to every scout, just love being courted. Or is it someone that wasn't like really like a huge fan? I just wanted to go hit or, you know, play, play video games with his buddies or, or do whatever it was. Like um, I think that historically is something that I've, I've always looked at is like, this is going to be a predicting a kid who's, who's going to check in important boxes along the way and be successful. You know, I think the other thing too, is like being crazy with this. It's, it's kind of a bold statement to say is like, they're, there are some really easy things you can do to reduce the risk of injury. Like I, I you guys are probably familiar with like the FIFA 11, right? The FIFA 11 was like the most foundational, basic dynamic warm-up done. And, and they reduced the incidence of hamstrings and, and ACL injuries in soccer, like dramatically. I mean, it was like, honestly, it was like over 60% people that actually did it. So like just doing a quality warm-up every single day um, has a profound impact. We, you know, we know also like in the baseball community, two things that 
pretty much always predict injury. And there's not a lot that always predicts injury in any sport, but particularly in baseball, we know that overuse always predicts injury. So, you know, looking at workload, how much of guys gotten beaten up over the years, if it's a high school kid who's thrown a hundred innings, you know, every year since he was nine years old, it's probably not going to end well. And then also, you know, cuff weakness is something that predicts injury over and over again. You know, the range of motion studies are, are, are somewhat inconclusive and sometimes contrasting with one another, but, you know, being weak through your cuff, it tends to predict injury. So like having strength in the right place is, you know, regardless of whether it's a shoulder or not, um, seems to, to support the idea that a guy will be, you know, at least healthier. And there's, there's different kinds of strength. There's strength in bad patterns, strength in good patterns. You need to be able to separate those things out. But those are just a few things that, that I look at for kind of trying to predict the future. What do you, what are you guys using? Or are you guys using things consistently to, to track workload? I mean, obviously one of our goals with Morpheus is to give, you know, give coaches and athletes a complete picture of the workload and the, the recovery from that workload. And I know mm-hmm. uh, different organizations have different rules and players unions have different mm-hmm. regulations and stipulations. But what do you guys look at in terms of, I guess, just technology as a whole? To, I mean, obviously you're measuring all kinds of things and ball velocities and you're using cameras for mechanics. But what are you using, you know, on any other side of the technology game? Yeah, I think um, the thing to remember is a lot of the workload stuff is sometimes it's um, it's subjectively objective, right? Um, you know, so certainly we, we have workload that we calculate on, on all of our players. Um, and really what it is, it's a collaborative effort. We're, we're fortunate. We have a, um, an entire performance science department that, that largely heads this up. Um, so David Whiteside is our, our director of performance science and, and Dave's a, a super sharp guy. So, you know, he's developed something that's, that's, you know, I guess unique to us. Um, and it's something that pulls in, um, a collection of different things because you, you have to take into account a lot of different entities in baseball. Like, so we have GPS data, data that every team gets, um, Hawkeye is the equipment that's in every major league stadium. So I can tell you how many steps, you know, or how many feet are left field are covered in a given game. Right. And so your workload is going to fluctuate a lot where, you know, if that guy goes over four or four strikeouts, you know, the extent of his exercise for that is jogging out to left field and back from our dugout. Like it's, it's not as high a workload than if he, you know, basically had three triples and stole two bases after a you know a single or something like that. So you can definitely look at, at how workload has has gone about. But um, even beyond that, there's a lot of early work, right? So players don't just hit and throw. Like we have infielders that take ground balls. We have outfielders that do outfield defense. You know, particularly true, like you think about it, like we, we play at Fenway Park when we're on the road. And, you know, like the Green Monster and left field in Fenway is like it's Fenway is a unique outfield. You have a right field, like the ball can get stuck in the corner. You have a center field that's got like a weird triangle. You have a left field that has like a green monster and you have to learn how to read balls off the wall, even though you might not have to cover as much ground. So like if we have a new player that comes up that's never played at Fenway, like when we get to town, like he's got to do a lot of work out there just to get adjusted to like what that park plays like. Um, so I, I think the big thing is our workload monitor has to, to take into account data from Hawkeye, which is a lot of, you know, how much, uh, you know, distance are you covering? How many pitches are you throwing? How hard are those pitches? What was your pitch count? Were they stressful? It also has to take into account what we're doing with them in the weight room, you know, on pregame sprint work, med ball stuff, anything like that. It also has to take into account, you know, uh, subjective feedback from the players. So our, our, you know, director of sports medicine has a, has a strong role in saying, Hey, this, this guy probably needs a day um, just based on a conversation that, that we had while we were doing some recovery stuff with him. So it's, it's a, it's a very collaborative effort across a number of different departments. And it, it, it leans heavily on, you know, everybody making sure that they're entering their data to, 
to give an accurate reflection of, of where things are. The hard part is like, there's always going to be a point that's subjective, right? You know, where, you know, Hey, what if he does his outfield defense at 50% effort versus hundred, like, you know, how stressful was it? That's up to the coach to kind of determine. So you just want to make sure that you're, you're, you're reproducible, you're precise, even if you're not perfectly accurate. I mean, it sounds like uh, it, it's, I found something similar, like a lot of organizations kind of build their own custom yeah. solution, right? More or less. It's the, the thing that always boggled my mind is these teams will put together these huge platforms and then a new, a new coach will come in and essentially just kind of throw out the window. I think baseball is probably more stable. And then some other organizations like the NFL where the whole basically coaching staff can turn over, but the Yankees, I'm guessing, have probably been building the system over time for quite a while, right? Yeah, we, I mean, that's the nice thing. We're, we're obviously a large, you know, kind of worldwide brand. And, and so we, we build a lot of stuff internally. We're, we're fortunate to have some really good developers and, and people like that who can do it. But yeah, I, I think it's like anything else that, like, you know, we, actually I was joking with Luca about this. Um, like there isn't a gym management software that I like, you know, like we've tried every gym management software there is. Some of them have like a terrible, calendar some like the credit card processing is bad sometimes like just the you know the interface with the clients isn't good i'm like we should just build our own and i think that's kind of what it, it comes down to a lot of times with is you you need something that's a very versatile you know kind of flexible model that, that takes into account a lot of different entities and also draws upon the, the actual truly objective data that that you have so um you know we're fortunate to have done it us but i, I can't overstate enough like nothing's more important than a conversation with an athlete and and so that's where like you know you can have the best sports science systems in the world but if you don't have relationships none of them matter so you know you try to nurture relationships you try to always have candid conversations with guys even if they're just you know quick fist bumps how you feeling today on the fly that stuff goes a really, really long way in, in you know in terms of like listening when it whispers instead of waiting for it to yell are you, are you finding it in general? I mean, I, I think kind of the old school mentality in combat sports was like, hey, if you take a day off, like uh, you're weak, right? Or you're, you're mentally weak if you're if you're taking days off, or you're trying to you know do these things. So you, you find that, you know, that mentality has changed a bit where, you know, guys are recognizing like, I, maybe I should take a day off or I should get some extra extra dry needling or whatever. Is it is it more mentality? Is the mentality more these days? Like, hey, I really do need to focus on recovery and then and the mindsets around that now. Um, it's definitely better. You know, I, I just don't think. I mean, let's be honest, nobody's ever going to break Cal Ripken's record, right? Like that's, that's just unheard of. Um, yeah. and, and I think it's, it's insane for us to expect, you know, guys to play 162 games. Um, it's just not happening anymore. And, and you can see guys that, that deliver a better value to their team playing 150 to 155 and taking those extra days off throughout the year. Um, and I think our, you know, across the board, like they're just, there aren't guys that are, that are going to do it. So every year you might have two or three guys that, that actually play 162. It's, it's pretty rare. More often than not, like the best players in the league are playing, you know, 145 to 150 and, you know, it's working out well for them. Yeah. But she's like the NBA has kind of gone that direction too, in some sense, so, you know, sitting guys and, um, you know, it, it is interesting that focusing on the quality of performance and getting guys to be at their best when they actually need to be their best is actually paying off. I mean, it's kind of something you could see, but it's it's kind of been against the the grain to to think that way up until the last you know few years. I mean, you wonder if the NFL at some point will start to rest guys even in season maybe, and maybe more teams will look at this uh, kind of longevity factor of their their athletes versus just trying to cram them in every single game possible. Yeah, and I, I think the other thing too is you know there's always like discussions of like you know injured list, and you know historically and you know in the world of strength addition, you're you're evaluated based on how many man games lost your team has, right? So. You know, if it's, it's fewer than it was the year before, you're doing a better job. Um, 
and, and we realize that there's also other factors that are involved. Like, you know, there's, you know, there are a lot of teams that use the IL for roster manipulation and, and that's not in a legal way, but it's just the nature of it. You know, there's, there's challenges that come about with like, you know, if you want to send a reliever down, you've got to wait 10 days before you can come back up with him. So you have to really make a decision is like, all right, this guy threw three innings tonight and I really could use another arm tonight, but do I want to lose this, this, this pitcher for the next nine days? And, and so you have to make those decisions a lot. And, you know, even the era of, of COVID, like different athletes bounce back from COVID differently. Some people are like totally fine at 10 days. Other people kind of get knocked on their butt a little bit more and lost a lot of weight and, you know, just we're really, you know, down and out. So there's a lot of factors that I think impact some of those numbers, even if we're, you know, we're trying to compare apples and apples, there's not everything is just like a, Hey, this is a great one hamstring. It's going to take this many days go. Um, there are a lot of factors that impact all of this. So you kind of have to, you know, not just look at, you know, what the injury is, but you got to look at how the player moves, what his history is. And then, you know, specific to the discussion we're having, like what kind of workload is he actually, you know, conditioned to tolerate? Because if he's not built up, like he's just going to have a recurrence not long after. Yeah. Um, before we wrap things up here, I just wanted to take a minute. So let's say I'm a, I don't know, I'm an up and coming strength coach. I want to work with baseball players. Maybe I played the sport, you know, um, where, should they go learn more? Because obviously you've covered a huge amount of topics and there's a huge amount of uh, detail in the game and the demands are unique to the sport. And you've mentioned, you know, there's, there's, there's not a lot of great coaching on some levels, even D1 level. I mean, what, where would you say, Hey, go here, learn this, you know, take this course. I mean, just kind of gives you have some just general advice for somebody who wants to be in the baseball transition world, but doesn't know how to become a better coach. Yeah. I mean, selfishly, I'd say like try to do an internship with us just because it's the most intensive baseball education experience you can get. I mean, we've kicked out a lot of coaches that, you know, maybe leave with a different perspective. Um, you know, I, I, I pride myself on having been exposed to a lot of different philosophies, right? I've, I've seen Sarman's work. I've seen PRI. I've seen DNS, uh, seen Eldoa. You know, like I, I kind of lose track of the number of courses I've been to, but I, I think it always comes back to you got to get around the athletes themselves. You've got, you've got to listen, you've got to speak the language, you've got to actually ask questions about, you know, what are the challenges that they face and what are the adaptations that they take on? So, you know, I think being around it is, is a big part of it. And that was something that I, I really had to go out of my way to learn. I, I stopped playing baseball in eighth grade. I was a better tennis player. So when baseball happened, I had to shut my mouth and do a lot more listening. And when, when the time was right, ask the right questions and, and nothing helped me as much as that. But, um, you know, I, I think the other side of it is you got to go hang out with pitchers and hitting coaches um it's interesting in, in you know in the private sector at Cressy sports performance you know I'm, I'm the president like i founded this along with you know two business partners but i'm you know i'm the managing member on the llc ultimately I'm, I'm supposed to be the one that always has the answers and you're expected to be the smartest person in the room and one of the you know really appealing things about the yankees you know beyond just obviously it's a stored franchise and it was a great opportunity to do some cool stuff but i got excited about the possibility of finding more opportunities to being the dumbest guy in the room um, you know, whether that was hanging out with our analysts who could speak to what's randomness and what isn't, um, I was getting around some of our pitching guys who, you know, had some really advanced stuff with respect to, you know, how they teach pitch design or how they evaluate video. Um, I, I really go out of my way to, to ask questions of our coaches, our players, just because I know that if I can learn, there's, there's a better chance that I'm going to be able to impart wisdom in a different way down the road that probably has a little bit more context for the athletes I'm teaching. So, um, probably not a perfect answer, but. The, the, the big thing is get out of your comfort zone and, and, and get around a lot of people in the game who have different perspectives than you do. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that's a big part of what, what I did when I first got in combat sports. I mean, I, my, about my experience in combat sports was like Taekwondo in like fifth grade. And, you know, next thing I know I'm training world 
champion level combat sport athletes. And the only way to do it, like you said, is to get around and be immersed in the sport, ask questions, you know, don't assume, you know, more than a a sport athlete. I mean, a sport coach has been doing it for for 10 years. I mean, ask them 20 years, ask them questions. And that was where Matt Hume was so valuable, you know, to me, been doing it forever. And and you have to be a student of the game before you can be a coach of the game. So that's, that's a, you know, very similar path to to what I took. So, you know, I I talk a lot with guys about that. I was just going to say, I talk a lot. It's, it's much easier than it was when, when I came up like 2007 to 2010, like I, you couldn't just go and get certified. You couldn't go to our baseball mentorships. You, you, you couldn't like go to an event like Pitchapalooza, which has, you know, great networking. And there just wasn't like YouTube and, and all these resources. There weren't internships in, in the baseball world. And I just think back like Matt Blake, who's now our major league pitching coach in the New York Yankees. Matt was our pitching coordinator at Cressy sports performance for I don't know, five, six years. I can't remember, but um, you know, Matt basically raided my bookshelf. He read everything you could possibly read. He peppered me with strength conditioning questions and he applied it to pitching. It's so much easier now. Like we built out these internship curriculums. Like there are people that you can just like call that you can follow on Twitter and, and pick stuff up and, I don't think young coaches realize just how much easier they have it. I sound like an old man, like on his, on his porch, <laughs> yelling at kids, they get off his lawn, but you know, the, the take home is like, you have no excuse to, um, you know, to not be motivated and, and, and chase your career because the information's all out there. Someone's going to use it if you don't. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there was a kid when I was, when I was entering university of Washington, came Zach Deshant, who was, who was kind of right mm-hmm. after yeah. me. Yeah. Um, and Zach was the same way. You know, I, I went towards combat sports. He read everything he possibly read and was studying the game. And he was at TCU doing a hell of a job. Yeah. He had a book out, um, yeah. you know, and built himself a great coaching career. It's, it's, it's just what you said. It just comes down to you have to be hungry and eager to learn. You have to constantly asking questions, trying to get better. You have to be immersed in the sport. You have to speak the language, build the relationships. You have to yeah. kind of, I think that that end of coaching is universal. It doesn't matter if it's baseball or combat sports or NFL or whatever. It's, it's all that same elements that make a coach successful or, or unsuccessful or not willing to do them. You nailed it. That's hundred percent. And Zach does a great job at TC. He was one of the most respected, you know, college trained coaches in the country. And, you know, it's proof that he's worked, you know? Yeah, yeah absolutely. He kind of came to me a few years ago and was talking about writing a book and, you know, just asking for advice. Absolutely. You know, get it out there. There, there needs to be more people like Eric and, and him, you know, and at the time, you know, there wasn't, he hadn't written anything. I said, yeah, you, you need to write, you know, get out, get out your experience and help other coaches they're looking for. Uh, you know, the, the collegiate, the collegiate level coaching and what to do. And he got a book out. It's been hugely successful for him. So, you know, like I said, just, if you, if you, same thing as an athlete, if you work hard, you put your head down, you're constantly trying to get better and you'll be successful as a coach. That's, that's really what it comes down to. Eric, if people want to take, I know you put out a ton of great free content. And then also you mentioned some internships that you guys have at Cressy. Where, uh, where do you, where do you send people? What's some of the best places for them to go online? Sure. The, um, the facility is CressySportsPerformance.com. And then uh, my personal website's EricCressy.com. There's a free newsletter and, uh, and, you know, kind of regular blog updates and things like that there. And then on, um, on Instagram and Twitter, it's just at Eric Cressy. So I'm always around. And then there's a, there's actually a baseball specific podcast that I put out there pretty regularly. So that's kind of a good resource if you're looking to pick up a little bit with respect to how string conditioning and pitching and sports medicine and all that stuff goes together. What's the name of that podcast? Uh, it's called the Elite Baseball Development Podcast. And I, I, Joel, I need to get you on there here very soon. Even if you don't care about talking about baseball, we, we talk about ge- general <laughs> principles as well. So yeah, we're going to do it. We'll do a, ho- a home and home podcast series. And, and helicopters. <laughs> there you yeah, go. There go. <laughs> Perfect. Right on. Come on. Well, uh, Eric, thank you so much for spending some time with us. I know uh, I learned a ton uh, from you guys today, and it's, uh, it's greatly appreciated. So both of you keep up the great work in the coaching community. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming on.
No sweat. Thank you very much for having me, guys. I enjoyed it. Yep, thanks, Eric. Hey, friends, don't leave yet. We wanted to thank you for listening to this episode of Morpheus Radio. If you enjoyed it and you got value out of it, we asked you to do just a couple quick things. Number one, share. Put on social media. If you got value, then I'm sure all of your friends and colleagues will as well. Number two, go to wherever you listen to podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Leave us a nice review and we will greatly appreciate it. We may even read it on air. Lastly, go to trainwithmorpheus.com. You can get more information about the Morpheus system as well as schedule a meeting or join the next challenge at trainwithmorpheus.com forward slash challenge. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.